sound familiar? If your baby is going through another bout of bad diaper rash, then you need to give Dr. Mom Butt Balm a try. It was created by a mom who's also a doctor. When my kids were little, I remember using this thick, goopy cream to help soothe their sensitive skin. Ugh, it was so difficult to wipe off. Not with Dr. Mom Butt Balm. You only need a small amount, and it's really easy to apply and remove. It's also free of dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, so it's gentle on your baby's delicate skin. Help your baby feel better and get relief from irritating diaper rash with Dr. Mom Butt Balm. Look for it on Amazon and Walmart.com. Breastfeeding, bed sharing, and sleep training are some of the hottest topics out there today in the parenting world. We might be crazy, but we've decided to tackle them all in today's episode. I'm thrilled to welcome a new expert to the show, Dr. Wendy Middlemas, an associate professor in the Department of Educational Psychology at the University of North Texas. Today we are discussing the science of mother-infant sleep, breastfeeding, bed sharing, and sleep training. This is The Boob Group, episode 78. Breast milk, it does a baby good. Silly daddy, boobs are for babies. I make milk, what's your superpower? If my breastfeeding offends you, put a blanket over your head. Dairy diva, don't be lactose intolerant. Nursing nature's own breast enhancement. Meals on heels. Whoever said there's no use crying over spilled milk, never had to pump. Breast milk, all udders are inferior. Whatever your point of view, we're here to support your breastfeeding goals. We're the boob group, because mothers know breast. Welcome to The Boob Group, broadcasting from the Birth Education Center of San Diego. The Boob Group is your weekly online, on-the-go support group for all things related to breastfeeding. I'm your host, Robin Kaplan. I'm also an international board-certified lactation consultant and owner of the San Diego Breastfeeding Center. Did you know that all of our episodes are now free? Yes, we opened up our archives just for you so that our listeners have access to all of our episodes anytime, anywhere. Just download them from our website, theboobgroup.com our apps, which are available on iTunes and Amazon Marketplace, or subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and have our episodes automatically added to your account each week. Today, I am joined by three lovely panelists in the studio. Ladies, will you please introduce yourselves? My name is Christina. I'm 28 years old. I'm a stay-at-home mom, and I have a son, Gregory, that's nine months. I'm Stacy Spensley. I'm 31 years old. I'm a health coach, and I have one son who is eight months old named Ivor. I am also Christina, Christina Williams. I'm 34. I'm in medical education. I have one daughter. She is 21 months. And I'd also like to introduce MJ, our producer. MJ, will you introduce yourself and tell everyone about our virtual panelists? Yes. Well, I'm MJ. I'm stay-at-home mom to Jason, who's 27 months old. Um, and thanks to Robin, I have this amazing opportunity to help and support other mamas through their breastfeeding journey. I'm super passionate about breastfeeding and helping others, so I'm really thankful to be here with you all. Uh, one of my duties as the producer is to bring you mamas into the studio, as well as um, over the internet. Our virtual panelist program is a way for anyone to give their opinions and share experiences, even if they can't be in the studio. So make sure you like our Facebook page and or follow us on Twitter using the hashtag Boob Group VP, uh, because on recording day, we post the same questions we ask our in-studio panelists, so you can join the conversation. And we can um, may even read your comment um, in the episode, or um, you, and when you join the conversation, you 
may win a one-month subscription to the Boo Group Club. So come and share your stories while you're helping other mamas in the process. Awesome. Thanks, MJ. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Sounds familiar. <coughs> if your baby is going through another bout of bad diaper rash, then you need to give Dr. Mom Butt Balm a try. It was created by a mom who's also a doctor. When my kids were little, I remember using this thick, goopy cream to help soothe their sensitive skin. Ugh, it was so difficult to wipe off. Not with Dr. Mom Butt Balm. You only need a small amount, and it's really easy to apply and remove. It's also free of dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, so it's gentle on your baby's delicate skin. Help your baby feel better and get relief from irritating diaper rash with Dr. Mom Butt Balm. Look for it on Amazon and Walmart.com. Hey everyone, this is Sunny. I'm one of the producers on the Boob Group. And before we get started with today's show, we have a special interview for you. Don Alva is joining us. She is the founder of Rumina, which creates some wonderful products for breastfeeding moms. So Don, welcome to the Boob Group. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us what Rumina is. Well, I'm the founder of Rumina Nursing Wear and we design garments that transition from bump into your baby, designed for pumping and hands-free, hands-free pumping and nursing. Okay. So we have tanks and also bras, so that helps uh, when you're on the go and need to um, either nurse and or hands-free pump. It makes it easy, convenient, and saves time. So I'm assuming you're passionate about your product, you're passionate about your company. Tell us how it got started. So I, uh, I struggled with breastfeeding and pumping with my son six years ago. And so when I was out in the market looking for something that I could actually do something else with my hands than hold these lovely funnels to my breast, <laughs> um, nothing worked for me. Um, my body type just didn't quite fit the structure of the garments that were out there. I wanted something that I could wear at work. Um, it was very uncomfortable to get undressed at work, even though I had my lovely private room. I wanted something that was covering and layering. So I um, worked through uh, different uh, processes of, of putting my idea to paper. So I designed a seam hands-free pumping and nursing bra so no irritation with the nipples and be able to easily quickly nurse and pump wherever you're at. So Don, tell us a little bit more about the products that you've created that you really like. So we just came, I'm really excited, we just came out with a bra that is a, what we call our relaxed crossover bra. So it has a beautiful design that layers under and has this V around your um, lovely breasts. <laughs> um, but it's hands-free and designed for maternity as well as the new postpartum when you're engorged and sensitive. So it has a soft jersey knit cotton. It's seamless for no, no irritation, no holes. And it also transitions into hands-free pumping. So. I, I still am nursing my one-year-old lovely little Beth, <laughs> and I really love being able to not have to fiddle with any clips or clasp, and I prefer a little bit of um, support yeah. when I'm sleeping, and so I can easily just drop it down, no worries, no fuss, in the middle of the night and get back into bed as quickly as possible. I know, because you know I've done that too with like, you were talking about the clips and stuff, and it feels like sometimes you're just spending so much time just to, you know trying to set it up so that you can be hands-free, and I'm like, I probably wasted so much time just setting this up as opposed to absolutely <laughs> you know, just holding it I love when our moms um you know give us feedback of when they're in the NICU and they need oh, to yeah. be some support and for the time as well as going to transition into work because 
juggling family work and newborn it's 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 obviously very very challenging so right. having something that can save you time quick and easy and makes you feel comfortable is what i was going for a very functional garment so how can people purchase these garments well, definitely come to RuminaForMoms.com. We have some fun colors coming out over the course Ooh, of the month. So yeah. it's not just your traditional bra colors, which we've been uh, we've been there for our tanks and our bras thus far. So you're going to see some glorious blues and vibrant <laughs> reds, and I'm excited about that. So you can go to our website. You okay. can also go to Amazon, and we're all, we also sell through different boutiques across the country. Okay. Well, we're going to encourage our listeners to go to your website because Rumina for Moms. If you go over there and you enter promo code Mommy Me. Media, you're going to receive 20% off your entire purchase. So, Don, thank you so much for being here and for offering this great promo code for our listeners and promoting breastfeeding because sometimes it's a challenge. And we love that there's products out there like yours that make it just a little bit easier. Thank you very much, Sunny. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's topic on the boob group is the science of mother-infant sleep, bed sharing, breastfeeding, and sleep training. Our expert, Dr. Wendy Middlemas, is an associate professor in the Department of Educational Psychology at the University of North Texas. She is also the co-editor of a brand new book called The Science of Mother-Infant Sleep, Current Findings on Bed Sharing, Breastfeeding, Sleep Training, and Normal Infant Sleep. Hi, Wendy, and welcome to our show. Hi, thank you. So, Wendy, what is the most current research saying about the safety of bed sharing and how does this affect SIDS risks? Well, the safety of bed sharing is a, uh, a topic that, that gains a lot of research and a lot of attention. And one of the most salient things to take out of all of the research as a whole is that there are specific things that create risks for babies in any sleep setting. Um, and so for safe sleep, really what you need to do is to protect an infant's capacity to breathe, which means you have to keep their airway open, uh, which means you have to protect their mouth and their nose and make sure that their neck isn't bent. Uh, And the other is that you need to protect their arousal response. When we sleep, we have an arousal response that that wakes us if anything goes wrong. And um, in babies, that can be compromised uh, if they are preterm babies, if they aren't feeling well, um, if their mothers smoke cigarettes. Uh, during pregnancy or after. And so really the research as a whole, when you tease apart all the pieces, points to some very constant and, and, and salient risks for infants. They aren't necessarily tied to location. They are tied to what the infant needs to do to be um, uh, healthy and, and uh, while sleeping. And what criteria should a parent follow if they want to make bed sharing safe? Well, they want to make bed sharing safe, then they have to make sure that they are doing everything that is going to lead to those two, uh, protect those two um, elements of the infant sleep. So to protect the airway, they need to make sure that the baby uh, isn't sleeping anywhere where there is going to be uh, something that will fall on the baby's face, whether it's bedding, whether it's a pillow, 
whether they're rolling onto a pillow, uh, whether they're rolling up next to um, something that that will will impinge their 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 breathing. That's very important. Uh, they shouldn't. They should make sure that when the baby is sleeping, that they aren't sleeping on a pillow. Uh, babies come with uh, their brain as such that it 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 creates its own pillow. And if you put a pillow under a baby's head, it's like an adult trying to sleep on two pillows with our chin going down. Um, so that's a problem. Uh, if moms are smoking, they uh, bed sharing really isn't a safe alternative. Uh, baby's arousal response is um, fairly uh, is is physiologically not as strong uh, as when babies are not exposed to sleep. So if they want to um, if they want to uh, share sleep. Spaces, they should make sure to protect that space for the infant. Um, it's the same type of recommendations that you would have if you were placing a baby in a crib. The baby needs to be uh, in a position where they're not going to, uh, where there isn't soft things that are going to keep them from breathing well uh, and um, that they're going to arouse. One of the things, don't want them to be overly hot. Um, so blankets and covers are always a problem as well. Uh, in a in a bed with an adult, there are sheets and such. You need to make sure that they aren't going to be tangled. Um, but those are the you know the same types of uh, concerns and steps you would take for a baby sleeping in a crib. Okay. And how does bed sharing facilitate longer breastfeeding duration? Well, it's the, it it facilitates breastfeeding duration because it it makes it very simple. To um, to breastfeed the baby, you know, a baby who's breastfeeding is likely to uh, feed more often uh, with the mom there uh, and the baby there together. They uh, that breastfeeding is just very simple. Putting the baby to bed very often when you're breastfeeding, putting the baby to bed, you breastfeed, and the baby falls asleep. And so there isn't very often the recommendations that come with separate sleep create almost, you know, create a necessary space between feeding and and the infant sleeping, and that can be a problem as well in regard to that that long-term breastfeeding. Okay, and so I'd love to open this up to our panelists now. Ladies, um, if you bed share, do you bed share all night or just certain times of the night? Christina? Um, we bed share. We My son goes to bed about 6.37, and he'll go in his crib until we go to bed at about eight nine now these days (laughs) um and then he'll sleep with us for the rest of the night and he'll wake up about every hour in the crib and we have to soothe him back to sleep and then once we hit the bed he's out for the rest of the night okay how about you stacy we do when he was really little we had a little um kind of nest thing that went in the bed and then um now we do we did the same as christina we put him to sleep in the crib he actually does pretty well in the crib but then once he wakes up to eat um a lot of times it's hard to put him back in the crib after that so He's been rolling a lot lately. He's just started crawling. So we try to put him back in the crib, but after a couple of tries, we'd rather sleep. And the more he sleeps, the more we sleep. So we'd rather he was just asleep than he was asleep in the crib. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone's nodding. (laughs) Um, Christina, how about you? We are no longer bed sharing. We were until she was about 18 months old, um, in which case we, we transitioned her to the crib for the 
most of the night now. Still, sometimes she comes into our bed sometimes, but for the most part, she's in her crib. Okay. And MJ, you, we have some virtual panelists who want to share what they're doing? Yeah. A lot of the mamas are um, saying that they pretty much bed share all night long. Um, one of the mamas said that she has, um, it's Karen Sanders, all night. since We have since birth, seven uh, since birth and she's seven months now she wouldn't get any sleep otherwise and then another mama said uh, Stephanie Creed says uh, when we did bed share we did it all night it was quite convenient for nursing in the middle of the night and virtually no crying from our baby girl <laughs> that's absolutely true Wendy does bed sharing make it more difficult for the breastfed baby to sleep longer chunks at night um, do you find that children sen- tend to snack throughout the night when sleeping in bed with mom there are, is some uh, indication that, that they will feed more often. That's not a problematic thing if a baby is sleeping and and waking and feeding. It's often raised as though it's something to be troubled about, that it may impact later sleep and the duration of sleep, but there isn't really any research that suggests that, that that's the case. Certainly, there's no issue around feeding for the babies. They don't feed that way during the day. Generally, they feed, um, you know, when they're more occupied to do other things. And so there doesn't seem to be any definitive reason why that's a concern. But for many infants, that that will be the case. For many infants, though, they bed share and they wake every two hours or every three hours. So it, it will vary still from infant to infant. Okay. Ladies, um, do, do your children breastfeed throughout the night? Yeah. yeah. Christina? Yeah. Our Gregory does. He's constantly on the boob pretty much all night. And are you getting sleep during this time? Yes, a lot of it. <laughs> when, when we go to bed, I, I mean, I will wake up maybe once or twice just to kind of flip over so he's on the other boob so I don't get engorged. But, yeah, he munches all night. Okay. How about you, Stacy? He does. I My husband works late, and so we're actually working on now to have him feed a little bit less frequently just because I tend to have to put him back down. And if I put him back down, he wants to nurse, whereas if my husband puts him back down, he'll actually go back to sleep. But he tends to, once, he, once about, it's usually around 4 a.m., it's probably snacking pretty much constantly till six almost yeah. every morning. <laughs> how how about you, Christina? Not anymore. Yeah. Um, about around eighteen months also is when she stopped wanting to nurse in the middle of the night. She she learned to take in a, a lot right before bed. I noticed that she would nurse for much, much longer, um, and not wake to nurse. When we were co sleeping, she would pretty much stay latched on all night. And if she came off, she would wake up. Um, so that was a little bit tough, but I, I, you know, suffered through it for 18 <laughs> months, um, and now she sleeps. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, Wendy, Kay had posted on our Facebook page, what can I say to people who think that I'm ruining my child's chance of ever sleeping on his own or self-soothing while I'm bed sharing? There isn't any research that suggests that babies who are engaged in shared sleep are going to have problematic sleep patterns later on. Infants take about the first two or three years to really settle into someplace around 18 months is what, you know, is is a common time for infant sleep patterns, almost irrespective of how they have been sleeping, whether parents have stayed present and put them down to sleep and then picked them up when they woke up or whether parents were bed sharing with them or whether they were um, settling in a, in a separate location from the parent. But at about 18 months, between 18 months and three years, almost all infants, the majority of infants will begin to sleep in a, in a fairly set pattern. So really in terms of ruining your infant's sleep, I don't think that there's any research that 
clearly supports that to be an issue. And when you when you kind of tease around, tease out some of the other elements, the the more comfort a child has, the more independent they become later. Uh, that has to do with attachment theory. It has to do with synchronicity. It has to do with um, many issues uh, related to uh, the neurology of that uh, developing system of social and emotional interaction. So it, if, if someone were to say that to me, I would say, well, you know, that it, it doesn't seem to be the case. And, it, and it doesn't seem to be the case. It, it's just a handy thing, particularly if there's an expectation that infants should sleep through the night at a very early time. Then it's very easy to say that infants aren't sleeping well by one year or one and a half years if they're in a shared sleep situation and they're waking more frequently. Uh, that may well be, and it probably is, how they will sleep at that time. But will they sleep that way later? That's that's not at all documented. Okay. Well, wonderful. Well, when we come back, we will discuss with Wendy what current research is saying about sleep training and how that may impact breastfeeding rates. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. We are on the phone with Wendy Middlemas, who is an associate professor in the Department of Educational Psychology at the University of North Texas. And we are talking about her book, The Science of Mother-Infant Sleep, specifically bed sharing, breastfeeding, and sleep training. So Wendy, um, let's talk about sleep, this sleep, tra- sleep training trend. Um, parents are exhausted. Baby's waking up multiple times a night. Everyone just wants a decent amount of sleep. Um, so many parents consider meeting with a sleep coach or a sleep trainer. What, what is the most current research saying about sleep training, and is there a difference between sleep training and crying it out? Well, there, there are, with, to start with the last part of that question, sleep training in, incorporates crying it out, and there are many different um, levels of crying it out. Basically, when people talk about sleep training and they talk about controlled crying, they're talking about more controlled comforting. They're talking about trying to extend the period of time um, an infant is required to settle themselves before they receive attention. When you have controlled crying, uh, the way and uh, the way sleep training is very had been very frequently thought of, it was to leave the baby, you know, to put the baby down if the baby's crying, to leave the baby there unless. Um, unless there were some physical reason that the baby was in danger and then you would attend to the baby, but then you would put the baby back down. So if the baby threw up or uh, had some other sort of distress that needed to be fixed, you would you would fix it. And um, the crying itself wouldn't be a reason to go back to the baby. That would be unmodified um, controlled crying. Uh, modified controlled crying is when you put the baby down if they're crying, you attend to them in uh, longer, uh, with longer periods of time in between. Uh, and then there is controlled comforting. Controlled comforting often entails um, some, uh, instead of just going back to, you can go back and you can um, pat the baby's, you know, rub the baby's back, or you can do some other sort of um, thing. You can go in and be present. Uh, and and then it's that comforting rather than the crying that um, that you address. For all of them, uh, 
if they are done correctly in terms of the actual behavioral modification steps that are, are required, then babies will stop crying because it's really just an extinction model where you're extinguishing the crying by not attending to it with any type of re- response or reinforcement. Um, so the research uh, is very clear, and you will see this often stated, that over a short period of time, you can uh, train, they don't use the word train, you can teach a baby to fall asleep on their own without crying, and that's because you've extinguished the crying behavior. Um, the problem seems to be, at least during that, that time period, which is the only place that we have any research, and it's research that I had done in New Zealand, the time period when the baby is uh, going through that extinction, their stress level remains very high. That means that they have stopped crying, but um, they they are not feeling less distressed. The physiological signs of stress are still are still quite high. They don't change during that process. So the baby then is feeling this distress, but they are no longer communicating it because the communication itself, the crying, has been extinguished. Um, The question is then, of course, whether that stress level remains, and and we don't have any research that speaks to that as of yet. Um, However, it seems a very risky uh, approach to an end, uh, and the end being everybody getting more sleep. Now, sleep, I'll be the first to say, is, is a very important part of, you know, of, of caregiving. Every, you know, having a baby that's rested, having parents that are rested is always very beneficial. But getting to it by sleep training probably isn't the best approach. It really um, creates a situation that that's very un natural for the infant, that that lack of response to their distress. Uh, Then there are ways to, you know, if you take then that as a foundation, then as a family you can start to look at other ways you might be able to manage that nighttime care in a manner where everybody gets more sleep. But, uh, you know, not starting with the sleep training, but if you push that to the side and say, okay, that's not... I don't want to start there, and you look back and you, um, there are other ways that you can um, that you can create a good sleep environment. Very often, one of the best ways, and I'm doing some research with a woman in Australia, uh, one of the best ways is to really become extraordinarily aware of their sleep signals and what helps them to, uh, what's most calming for them. And then that com- sometimes will facilitate that transition to sleep. Okay. Um, and I do want to mention too, because we only have 30 minutes, we will be doing a whole nother episode on just all of these tips and tricks that Wendy has kind of outlined in her book as well. Um, ladies, have you ever tried sleep training? Um, if you did, what happened? Stacy? Um, we haven't really tried it. We've kind of read a couple of the different techniques and we're like, okay, is there any way we can get this kid to sleep a little bit longer? Again, my husband works late. So when he pops up, he goes to bed about eh, 7, 7.30, somewhere in there. And if he pops up at 8.30, 9.30, I'm the only one who's there and I have to pump again at night. So it's a little tough when, you know, he's crying and I'm hooked up to my pump and in the other room and all that stuff. But everything 
like we've tried you know sneaking in and kind of just patting and he he's not interested so if i pick him up i usually end up nursing him back down which is fine and if my and like I, I mentioned earlier is now that my when my husband is home on his nights off then we'll have him try to go in and soothe him and then i'm the last resort and it has it is it's i don't know if it's helping him sleep longer but it's helping me not have to go in every hour at yeah. least how about you christina it seems like stacy and i are kind of on the same page we did try um crying it out and i think i lasted four minutes and like 50 seconds <laughs> and I was in tears after about 30 45 seconds just knowing that I you know I I couldn't go and you know help him and after that I swore it off and would never do it again I mean now I'm just like you know he's eventually gonna sleep through the night and I'm not gonna rush it yeah how about you other Christina <laughs> sort of so the situation we were in is that I had to go into surgery and I knew I was going to be on some pretty heavy-duty pain medication for a few weeks and wouldn't feel comfortable bed-sharing with her. Um, and so we went through a period where um, I stayed with her, but gradually, very ever so slightly, over a period of about six weeks, just moved slightly away from her. There was no tears. You know, she felt me in the room with her and comforted by my presence, and but without the big training, you know, sort of formal process around it um and that I did after after she night weaned herself so she wasn't nursing overnight um and I kind of took those cues and that's when I I put off doing the surgery until I felt like she was in that place um and when I did that breastfeeding was a really important part of it for me I didn't want it to interrupt that relationship and so um we what we did at that time was just sort of kept nursing and kept doing that, but just having her feel my presence with just a little bit more space. And she'd kind of look sometimes at me and then just go to sleep. Um, and, and now she goes to bed without me in the room for too long. You know, I stay with her and comfort her and put her to sleep, but um, I don't have to stay in there for hours and hours, you know, like you see in sleep training situations. Yeah. Okay. Um, MJ, what about our virtual panelists? Um, we have Anne Lineberg Hamilton um, commenting about sleep training. She said that she did with her oldest. Um, it worked. Uh, it worked, she said, but she regrets it. She's much more insecure than um, than the one that they let uh, sleep with them for four years. So oh, I thought wow. that was kind of interesting. And I think, you know, my kids too are seven or almost seven and eight and sleep training was huge, like at that point and you know something recommended by the doctors and um it's interesting i i sobbed and sobbed and sobbed for days doing it and i look back and like what's wrong with me why did i do that <laughs> but um but again it's I, as we'll talk about in a little bit it, the power of the healthcare provider can be um what is the white coat syndrome can be very powerful as well um wendy how how can sleep training affect um i guess negatively affect breastfeeding if if families are are trying to keep breastfeeding going throughout the night but then they might start weaning maybe um, a little bit earlier or how, how can it affect it well I, I think you know part of this part of some of the um, things that the moms were mentioning is that it, it, it's very incompatible breastfeeding and this idea of not being present because part of part of any sleep training and part of any teaching the baby to settle by themselves means that you've removed people from that transition to sleep. So you could breastfeed right before putting them down, but then 
during the night you would be very hesitant to breastfeed them when they woke because you really want them, you know, part of sleep training is to have them settle back to sleep as well. And so that really, it really takes the, it takes the mom out of easily having a place in that constructed sort of setting. And, and as the moms are saying, it, it doesn't feel natural. It feels very uncomfortable. Uh, and, and it is very easy to listen to, you know, the advice of somebody um, such as a, well, medical professional certainly. But for breastfeeding, it just it makes it a very difficult situation because it's, it, it, breastfeeding involves engaging in exactly what the, the controlled sleep is trying to end. And Wendy, um, it is, it's, you know, you mentioned in your book that, that parents often hear recommendations from healthcare providers regarding when a baby should be sleeping through the night or doesn't necessarily need to feed during the night anymore. So I would love to bust some of those myths um, by what, what are normal sleep patterns for children throughout the first two years and when is it quote unquote normal for a child to stop feeding during the night? Well, Sometimes in between, you know, maybe around two years to stop feeding in the night. It depends upon whether they're still breastfeeding. It will decrease the breastfeeding um, and breastfeeding during the night to some extent when they begin to engage in eating solid food because they will get more uh, different sorts of nutrients from the solid food. Uh, for sleeping through the night, they babies will are unlike are, are going to be very uh, fluctuating in their sleep patterns for the first four months. They will change fairly frequently for the next, you know, until they're a year to 18 months of age. Um, but babies before four months of age are, are, are very likely to wake during the night. And they are as well from six to eight months of age and to 12 months of age. And there are times where they will start to sleep and then because of developmental issues or whether those are cognitive or physically driven or um, socio-emotionally driven, uh, there will be reasons that they um, will wake more often again. So it's very, it's very flexible. You can almost count on that until 18 months of age. Uh, and by three, most babies will be settling through and sleeping through the night, not eating through the night. Um, that sort of thing, and not eating through the night earlier than that. Um, but these babies who are still waking at 18 months of age are still feeding during the night at 18 months of age. By the age of, uh, by, you know, slightly older than that, will not differ in how they sleep or eat in comparison to other babies. Okay, so you're saying in the future it's not like they're setting up bad patterns? No, it really doesn't seem to be. Some of the most recent research, and I think we outline it in one of the um, chapters in the book, but um, there's a longitudinal study that's been done. It's, a, it's beautiful in terms of the information that, that it provides. And when you look at that information, it shows that by, uh, by 18 months of age, most babies are sleeping pretty much the same. By three years of age, significant majority of them are sleeping through the night, irrespective of how they began. The mom who said, you know, we just kind of, you know, figured they'd start sleeping soon. That really probably is the case for most infants. Okay. And how do these recommendations from healthcare providers affect the parents' decision-making about sleep training and night weaning? 
Well, the healthcare providers are most likely to follow AAP recommendations, and most of those recommendations are going to uh, look toward definitions of sleep latency and number of times babies sleep at night to define healthy sleep. Um, as well, um, you will have recommendations for solitary sleep. When you put all of that together, the messages that you get will be focused on the idea of having the infant sleep for long periods of time as early as you can. And developmentally, that, that's, not, that's not the most crucial issue in these very early months. What's most crucial in these very early months is the responsiveness and the synchrony between the baby and the care providers. And that actually provides a firmer foundation for later, um, you know, healthy development than will other ways. But, you know, the, our medical community doesn't spend a lot of time teaching pediatricians about uh, social-emotional development, so it isn't really a place that they're going to start for an answer or a discussion. Okay. Ladies, what did your pediatrician say about night waking and night feeding, and did this affect your decision um, with nighttime parenting? Christina? Um, well, we have a doctor's appointment on Monday, so we'll see how that goes. But <laughs> at um, six months, she you know, asked to see sleeping through the night, and at this point, um, we were bed sharing and didn't, didn't mention that. But um, she was like, oh, you know, he's old enough now where you can start thinking about sleep training if that's what, what you decide. And I just, okay, that's good. Glad, you know, glad that you said that, but we're just going to continue doing what, what we're doing. So we'll see how Monday it goes, though. Okay. How about you, Stacy? So our pediatrician's office has a little checklist that you fill out before you go in and see the doctor, and they kind of lead you to give the right answers. They're kind of red flags, but um, one of them is, is your baby sleeping through the night? And you're supposed to check yes. And he had previously, you know, it's five to six hours or whatever. It's just at a six, at a six month appointment, he had a really bad form of sleep regression and he hadn't been. But I, so I checked no, but they didn't really say anything. So you know, it's like he gets as much sleep as he seems to need. And clearly he's, I have a 22 pound eight month old. He's not starving. <laughs> he's doing fine. He's very happy. So, you know, I'm, I'm more worried about how he is than what the doctor says he should be. Okay. How about you, Christina? My doctor was always really supportive of, um, you know, nursing through the night and was never concerned with her night wakings. She wasn't keen on bed sharing. Um, I told her that's what we're going to do anyway. And end of discussion. Um, but she was always very supportive of breastfeeding as often as possible. Cool. Um, MJ, any virtual panelists sharing any information? Yeah. Um, Priscilla, Amy, I love her comment. Uh, why would I ask my pediatrician permission to feed my baby? <laughs> she says, that's nuts. I fed her uh, when she was hungry. Duh. <laughs> um, and then Amy Mowers, she says, she suggested we try to try and cut down on nighttime feedings so that we wouldn't create habits. I smiled and kept doing what, what worked for us. And that is listening to our babies and giving them what they need. Sounds like we have a lot of intuitive parents yes. in the in the studio as well as online. Well, thank you so much, Wendy, and to our incredible panelists um, for discussing this very important topic that is pretty much on the minds of all parents of small children. And clearly, this is such an involved topic, so we plan on having Wendy back on the show to discuss ways to calm a crying baby and have a more peaceful night's sleep based on the research discussed in her book. So thank you so much, Wendy. We so appreciate your time. Oh, it's been a pleasure. There's a lot of wonderful moms that 
that are participating. I know, aren't they great? <laughs> yes, they are. And uh, for our Boob Group Club members, our conversation will continue after the end of the show as Wendy will discuss her top five tips for making decisions about nighttime care. For more information about our Boob Group Club, please visit our website at theboobgroup.com. So here's a comment from one of our listeners. This is from Maria, and this is what she wrote. Hi, Robin and company. I just wanted to let you know that I am a regular listener to your radio shows. I live and work here in the west of Ireland. I am sure you know what a great support you are to breastfeeding moms. I am still breastfeeding my soon-to-be 15-month-old little girl. I was hoping to breastfeed to about 12 weeks to give my baby the best possible start in life. From tuning in regularly to your show, I got a lot on information, inspiration, and motivation to keep on going, and I can't believe it's still working out. I have a bright, healthy, happy little girl who loves to breastfeed. Thanks so much for everything. That wraps up our show for today. We appreciate you listening to The Boob Group. Don't forget to check out our sister show, Preggy Pals, for expecting parents, and our show, Parent Savers, for moms and dads with newborns, infants, and toddlers. Thanks for listening to The Boob Group, your judgment-free breastfeeding resource. This has been a new mommy media production. The information and material contained in this episode are presented for educational purposes only. Statements and opinions expressed in this episode are not necessarily those of New Mommy Media and should not be considered facts. While such information and materials are believed to be accurate, it is not intended to replace or substitute for professional medical advice or care and should not be used for diagnosing or treating health care problem or disease or prescribing any medication. If you have questions or concerns regarding your physical or mental health or the health of your baby, please seek assistance from a qualified health care provider. Hey, mamas. Don't forget to check out Mighty Moms. It's our online community built for new moms just like you. Not only can you connect with other moms, but you can also join us backstage for special mom-only online events. And you'll also be notified when we're recording so you can join us as a special guest. Visit our website, newmommymedia.com, and click on the Mighty Moms banner. It's free. That's newmommymedia.com. See you there.